That's right, everyone. Welcome back to 80s High, the podcast that revisits the hits you forgot you loved from movies and TV to music and games, all from that radical decade. I'm your host, Chris. And I'm Ben. And this is 80s High. Ben, how are you doing? Chris, it's always the highlight of my week to see it. I'm fantastic. How are you, buddy? Doing well. Very excited for tonight because it's not just you and it's not just me. We have a third voice again on the show. It's always exciting when we have a guest, a new person to class, a transfer student, and we have someone new here to talk about today's topic. Are you jazzed? I am. I see the empty desk in the corner of homeroom is being filled in, and I think she's already carving. I see a heart with 80s high in the middle. Uh, that's pretty good. I like that. That's pretty good. Uh, no, can, can we can we welcome our new student, our co-host, for our highly anticipated co-host for this episode? We are not delaying here, folks, because I want to introduce Suzanne Mataboni. Who is Suzanne? She is an award-winning writer and author of Once in a Lifetime. That might sound a little familiar if you've clicked play on this episode. This is a coming-of-age women's fiction set in the 80s. She's a retro podcaster, a corporate PR consultant, a president of her own communications firm, member of the Newsweek Expert Forum, blogger, music lover, even a RuPaul fan, too loud singer, and a giggler, hailing from Northampton, Pennsylvania. I'm going to front load all of your awesomeness just so we get it right here, right now. Her, because her writing has been featured in publications such as, I don't know, The Huffington Post, Newsday, Chicken Soup for the Soul, Seventeen Magazine, just to name a few. She's even had pieces featured in anthologies, including Pizza Parties and Poltergeist. We really want to hear about this. We're coming back to that for sure. Oh, put a pin in it. Horror <laughs> stories set in the 1980s. Hello. Halloween is almost upon us. Everyone, please welcome Suzanne Mataboni to the show. hi wow you make it sound so good (laughs) i'm gonna hire you to do intros everywhere i go now (laughs) and it was hard not to laugh you know and start giggling as soon as you (laughs) we love that you're a giggler and this show is all about joy so please giggle away we're excited suzanne how are you tonight how do we find you how are you on tonight's recording I'm doing pretty good. I've just been, you know, running around doing a lot of promotions and stuff for, for the book and a lot of, uh, you know, writing and Q&As. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. It's kind of a whirlwind. But, you know, you kind of wait your whole life to get to do this. So, <laughs> so I'm enjoying it. I'm really glad you asked me to come on. We're so happy to have you. And when you hear intros like that, when you hear the, the your own CV said back to you, is it an out-of-body experience? Like, do does it feel real like it's you or, or do you recognize all that stuff? <laughs> well, it's so much nicer to have somebody else say it instead of... <laughs> <laughs> and consider you heard I do a lot of corporate PR, so I'm I'm writing about a lot of other people all the time, which is why you know I'm kind of trying to get used to now doing it for myself. But <laughs> it sounds much nicer when somebody else gets to say it as opposed to me writing it my own. <laughs> <laughs> There's no time to waste. Let's get down the hallway to history class and jump into today's topic that will eventually lead into our guest. We're going to be discussing the iconic song from 1980, Once in a Lifetime, by Talking Heads. So, 
in the spirit of the music video, let's pop lock and herky jerk like David Byrne <laughs> in the music video down the hall to history class to learn where this song came from. Okay, well, we're here in history class. And as you know, this is where we learn about the history of our topic. But I do want to take a little pause here because, Suzanne, you're our guest today. And we want to ask, what did the 80s, what did that decade mean to you? Where were you in your life at that time? How did it kind of shape who you are today? It was extremely defining considering, uh, okay, well, I guess I have to date myself, but that, you know, you can kind of figure that stuff out <laughs> if you read, if you read the fiction. But, uh, you know, you, you started rolling into the eighties and every decade, you know, it takes a couple of years to take off and personify its own, you know, traits and such. So leaving high school and going to college around 82, 83 was when all this new wave stuff really started to take off. So things mm-hmm. like maybe I started hearing new wave music in like 79 or 80. So it really, the music, I think, defined the decade. And as a young person, that defined everything. It defined like what friends you uh, you hung around with because they had to listen to the same music as you, uh, what kind of clothes you wore, what clubs you went to. You kind of found your tribe and that uh, that's where you situated yourself as far as, uh, you know, almost everything that you did. It, it shows your activities, it, it, you know, and everything. I think that the rise of this kind of music that were, the Talking Heads kind of, you know, was one of the pioneers of this really had a ton of influence on my life and was something like really kind of revolutionary that that was happening at a time the time that I feel really proud to be part of. That's awesome. You said a statement that reminds me of one of my favorite stand-up comedians, Pat Oswalt, does have a bit about like how defining your taste in music is to making your tribe, like in your teens and college. Where he was like, you know, when I was uh, in my 20s, I would kill you if you like this music and I would tell you my thoughts on na 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 But like now that I'm in my 50s, there's a music for every moment. Like, it just changes. But it's so formative when you're that age. That's true. I don't know if it's quite the same now, especially because a lot of young people are going back to retro music and vintage stuff and going on buying vinyl now that, you know, has been out of service for, you know, for decades. Uh, so I don't know if it's quite the same anymore. They, I think they have a wider acceptance because... Uh, I don't know. I don't want to criticize music that's going on now, but you know what I mean. I, I have quite an affinity to what we listened to, you know, back in the day. But it's true. I think there was more. Uh, you chose a side, like you know, if somebody listened to disco, that's it. You were not their friend anymore. <laughs> or if they were a headbanger, yeah. <laughs> you knew that was not your type of guy. Yeah, the writer of our theme song just told me this weekend that on Spotify right now, the most played. Band. Actually, this would be a fun game. Who do you think right now of all art and all of history on Spotify has the most plays of their music on Spotify today? Um, Fleetwood Mac. Fleetwood Mac. I love it. Oh, that's a great guess. Elton John is doing very well. Um, He's doing great. Kate Bush like went crazy during oh my God. Stranger Things. She was like my favorite artist in college. Yeah. Huge. Huge. Um, yeah. Blue up. Maybe let's see who else. I might guess Springsteen or Sting. Great guesses. Do we know the answer? Suzanne's gotten like 17. Chris, do you want one? Do you want one guess at least? <laughs> do you want to play? Uh, I don't know. Phil Collins. Queen. Queen. Oh, okay. There you go. Is the, okay. Has the most plays on hmm. Spotify. 
to your point of people going back and loving the the classic rock, it's awesome. And I think part of it too is like, it's just so more accessible now through all the streaming platforms. You don't have to go to a store and buy a disc or buy a cassette or find the vinyl. Like it's all there. And so if something kind of blows up on TikTok or social media or whatever, you can be like, oh, let me check this yeah. out. So I, I think that accessibility is something that has really helped uh, different audiences find new music, which is, I think, super cool. Absolutely. Chris, tell us, where did Once in a Lifetime begin? Yeah, so I just, I want to back up a little bit. If people are not familiar with Talking Heads and who the group is, they are an American rock band, and they formed in 1975 in New York City. The band was composed of David Byrne, who did lead vocals and guitar, Chris France on the drums, Tina Weymouth on the bass, and Jerry Harrison on keyboards and guitar as well. The group helped to pioneer new wave music, as Suzanne mentioned, really by integrating some different elements. They had punk, they had art rock, funk, world music, and they kind of merged all that stuff together and they combined it with their, I love this description, anxious, clean cut image. That's very David Byrne. He just, he looks like he's, he's a little nervous, but he's still got a bow tie on. So, <laughs> Well, and t- tying into Suzanne's book later on, but I just want to point out, these are four sort of unlikely heroes who come together through university and in New York to make it happen. Mm. So Byrne is from Dumbarton, Scotland. Drummer France is from Campbell, Kentucky. The bassist, Tina Weymouth, she's from Coronado, California. And then the keyboarder, Harrison, is from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So like all the different corners of the globe coming together, meeting together in Rhode Island School of Design and then moving to New York City to to make it happen. That's super cool. Yeah, Parallels to the book. I love it. I think two of them were actually in a band in art school. I think the Artistics, I think, is what their name was. I think a couple of them were in a band, quickly kind of dissolved. But then, yeah, they go to New York and then this group of four comes together and we get... Talking Heads. And by the way, I'm just going to throw out there, I'm going to start calling them the Talking Heads. It's really hard just to say Talking Heads because yeah. English, grammar, we're in school, you know, we're, we're being judged on our, uh, <laughs> on how we're saying our things. But, you know, the is not technically part of their name. This is not the Ohio State. It's oh, just Talking Heads. I mean, there's, <laughs> there's your distinction, right? <laughs> Don't you dare take the the out of Ohio State. <laughs> so the first Talking Heads album comes out. It's called Talking Heads. 77. And one of the first singles that comes out for kind of a big hit, Psycho Killer. You might know this song. It's shown up here, there, and everywhere. I think it's showing up in the, there's like a Dahmer miniseries or something, Jeffrey Dahmer miniseries. I think oh, this no. one's actually, this song is actually in it. So. But yeah, they're off to the races because that's 77. 78, more songs about buildings and food come out. And this is their first collaboration with producer Brian Eno. Eno's style kind of meshed with the group's artistic sensibilities. And this is where they really start to uh, explore more and more of this diverse range of musical directions. They're taking different influences and kind of putting those together. Did you say the album's called Songs About Buildings and Food? More songs about buildings and oh, food. Even more <laughs> songs about buildings and food. You know, a throwback to season two of 80s High, were they like friends with Weird Al Yankovic? I mean, did Weird Al ever cover Talking Heads? Gosh. I don't I don't know. We should have looked into that because Al Wright, we learned, loved to write songs about food. That was one of his main that is true. songwriting topics was food. 
Could he do one about talking heads? Talking heads are so experimental. Could he even do... <laughs> Could uh, he get experimental uh, on the uh, experimental? That's yeah, interesting. I mean, man, we'll that's, look a, into the that's an inception. Um, nothing's coming to mind, but maybe we should suggest it to him. <laughs> yeah, I know. Absolutely. Hey, Al, come on, buddy. You got to have a follow-up to your last big album. What do you say? Well, 79, next year, another album comes out, Fear of Music. This one has a little darker stylings. It's got some post-punk rock. It's got some white funkadelia. And it's got some references to geopolitical instability of the late 70s. And one of the notable singles off of this album is Life During Wartime. These are the three albums that are leading up to Remain in Light, which comes out once again, one year later, 1980. This is their fourth studio album. Also produced by Brian Eno, their longtime collaborator. And it is an album that nearly didn't happen. Right. Yeah, exactly. A lot of turmoil in the band. Yikes. It was uh, pretty rough. In fact, Eno was not even certain he wanted to work with them again. He's just kind of like, eh, you know, we've, we've done some collaborations. This might be it. So there's a lot of uncertainty. The band is upset with Byrne because they're feeling like he's too controlling Byrne was feeling tormented psychologically by the whole writing process and just everything. So fortunately, the band gets together and they hash it out and they decide they're going to do a completely new process built on mutual cooperation and a communal way of making music. I do just want to throw out there that in 1986, Weird Al did parody of the Talking Heads in his song, Dog Eat Dog off of uh, the album Polka Party. So it's not like a direct song. It just sounds a lot like the Talking Heads. Oh, did he do like a pastiche? He did the like little pastiche where it's like... Sort of their style. Oh, gosh. But it's also... A style pastiche, yeah. Okay. And he's wearing... In the music video, he wears a big oversized jacket, just like David Byrne liked to do in a lot of uh, his stage performances. That's brilliant. So anyway. Al, why did we doubt you? Why did <laughs> never, we doubt Never doubt you? Al. He's covered everything. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah, and it's hard not to parody that whole big-shouldered jacket thing. <laughs> Right? right? Kermit the Frog has right? worn the big-shouldered suit. <laughs> Even Kermit. Yeah. Even Kermit. Oh, I can't wait the to talk about suit that. That's with the shoulders. It's <laughs> a power suit. Hashtag bring shoulder pads back. That's what this episode's about. So good. Okay, so they come together. They decide on this new way of doing music. They're drawing influences from Nigerian musician Fela Kuti. They're experimenting with African polyrhythms. They're looking at funk, they're looking at electronics, and they're recording instrumental tracks in a series of looping grooves. And they kind of just go in and play with a lot of different jams. Let's try this, let's try that. They're recording it. And so they're just doing this in rapid succession, and then they're taking some of those best jams and they're saying, let's make a song around it. So kind of a different style than what they've been doing before. Byrne did something interesting because he was struggling with writer's block. He would just kind of like make up lyrics on the spot. So there's kind of this of the moment stream of consciousness. You're kind of, you're flowing and going with it. And he found that to be, I think, very liberating because again, psychological torment, not fun for a creative person. <laughs> no, you know nothing about that, right? Psychological torment on <laughs> trying to be creative. No, nothing. I'm sure our, I'm sure our author guest has never suffered self-flagellation and psychological torment trying to create the wonderful works you've worked on. Yeah, well, we're all supposedly <laughs> tortured souls, right? I mean, I try not to be too tortured. Right. <laughs> <because> <laughs> yeah. You gotta live your life. I mean, that's kind of like why I stayed away from fiction for a while because <laughs> it does make you crazy. And you know, publishing is just so full of 
rejection and scorn and criticism yeah. and stuff. So, so yes, I decided really. to take some time and just live a nice life and watch Disney movies with my children and, you know, just be <laughs> and sing along and just be happy and, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And that was nice. And I threw myself back into the fire. So who would have thought? <laughs> Welcome back to the torment. So Chris, you did name drop Fila Cootie. Like, I think the Fila Cootie in- influence is really interesting because this is a really interesting guy. So uh, he is sort of regarded as the pioneer of Afrobeat, which is sort of this African mm, music mm. genre that combines American funk and jazz with West African music. This guy plays like a gazillion different instruments. He's led multiple bands. He's a composer. Uh, But really interesting is he's a political activist. So Hmm. he was the son of a Nigerian women's rights activist, Funmaleo Rensome Kuti, which, again, this will tie into more uh, our talk of the novel later on in contemporary culture. But so he's, he's being raised in this very progressive home in... Africa on rights, on equality, and that bleeds into his music and how he writes his music, almost a little your jammy idea of let's all jam together and work something out and make it, make a piece of art together. But, mm-hmm. you know, we talked about, God, oh my gosh, this is going to make me feel old. Was it season one we did Paul Simon? It is. Season one we did Paul Simon's Forever Graceland. ago. Yeah, when we talked about Graceland, mm-hmm. which is also a massive musical bridge between Western and African music beats and songwriting. And so here it happens again. So Suzanne, I want to ask you, because you obviously know what's up with music in the 80s. I mean, you've literally written the book on it. Do you <laughs> recall this sort of trend of Western musicians, American musicians, English musicians trying to blend and work more with artists that were coming out of Africa? Well, let's see. I don't know that I was conscious enough of which countries exactly that everybody came from, but I do very clearly remember that there was a lot of reggae uh, that was kind of Mm. bleeding into new wave, that there was a lot of kind of ska type of uh, a sound that was coming, even like, you know, Sting and the Police did a certain amount of kind of like ska background sounds that were going on and bands like uh, General Public and uh, Fun Mm. Boy 3, I think were working with with different kind of uh, cultural sounds that were going on and had uh, members from from, uh, Jamaica and different uh, different areas. But I do remember there was uh, a certain multiculturalism that was going on that you didn't really see. Like you didn't see that in disco, let's say, that came before or... Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, or you know, heavy metal. It's it's not, it's all really kind of um, a little more homogenized, and even the punk music. Because this came up in another podcast where someone one asked me, um, they they were kind of associating the punk music just with like pasty white guys, but it kind of started <laughs> there in England. But I think it really, it, you know, I, I remember. I used to hear songs on the radio at the time. People were singing in German and, uh, you know, things were coming in from other countries where you never heard that before. And I don't think I've heard it since uh, where yeah. people are just singing in other languages and we're singing along, you know, Der Kommissar, et cetera, and Nina's mm-hmm. 99 Luftballons and that kind of thing. And then, you know, hearing, you know, musical youth and all this kind of stuff that people were singing and you could hear their accents, you know, whether it was a British accent or, or a Caribbean accent. So that was a really interesting mix. You know, everybody was very open to it. You know, it was all very cool. 
It's perfect. Well, speaking of all of this, uh, this blending and experimentation, you know, Remain in Light as an album is really acclaimed by critics. Uh, and its praise does come from its sonic experimentation, its rhythmic innovations, and a cohesive merging of disparate genres. So it wasn't just a let's jam this all together and make it sound interesting. It really kind of fit. And, and again, I think why the, the album and this song in particular we're going to be talking about has done so well. So let's get to the song, Once in a Lifetime. Yeah. Like others, this one was uh, developed by the recording of jams, taking those best parts and learning to play those. Actually, songwriter, I think this is interesting. Robert Palmer joined to jam on guitar and percussion. He was simply irresistible. I oh, love that he was there. <laughs> nice. Good job. Again, you know, we talked about the band almost didn't make it. This song almost didn't make it because Brian Eno is not a real fan of this song. And the band almost decided to abandon it and just say, you know what? It's on the cutting room floor. We can't make it happen. And I've heard of this a lot in uh, music, especially, I think, where you have something there. It just needs that final piece to come together. It's a great idea, but it's not a fully formed song. Peter Gabriel struggled with his song Sky Blue for like decades. He couldn't make it work until he finally did. And that's kind of, you know, it didn't take them quite that long here. They're going to get rid of it. And Byrne was like, I think I can make this work. The issue was the chorus. Because there are so few chord changes and you've got this like trance-like repetitive music, they're like, it's really hard to write a defined chorus around it. And what ends up happening is Eno just kind of wordlessly sings or hums, you know, a melody to the chorus. And they were like, oh, okay. And then... Byrne was able to take that and actually put real lyrics to it. What I read also as part of the complication was that the beat is a little odd in the song. And this is because yeah. it feels odd in Western songwriting, but because they took inspiration from how some the, this Afro beat was being made, where there are different rhythms. Like even when you watch the music video, which we'll get to, Byrne is sort of like moving not with the bass line. He's mm. sort of like his big punctuated dance move is not when the bass hits, which mm -hmm. is really interesting. So the band is sort of struggling to figure out like, all right, which am I following the bass or am I following the beat of Burns lyrics? What am I doing here? And it was sort of confusing, a little frustrating, it sounds like. And his delivery of the vocals is actually informed by American preachers and this idea of like him giving a sermon, this call and response chorus like a preacher in his congregation. And his vocals, as you know, if you know the song, realize are kind of half spoken, half sung. When you put all this together, it makes just a really interesting, unique song that to this day is pretty, it stands out amongst other experimental stuff we may have seen. Right. So he quoted himself as saying that he sat by the radio and listened to American preachers for a while and just started writing down phrases he thought was interesting. Some of those evolved into some of the lyrics in the song. Yeah. But in this quote, when he did this interview with Time Out magazine, he said, maybe I'm fascinated with the middle class because it seems so different from my life, so different from what I do. I can't imagine living like that. So there wasn't more context around that answer. Suzanne, can you help us remember what the middle class was like in the 80s? This sounds like he's talking about people living on Mars that are so incredibly different from him. I'm wondering, I mean, is it class-wise or is it like the headspace he was in as a creative person? I'm, I'm mm, kind of feeling yeah. like when you put these people together in art school, they're looking to do all these uh, cool creative things. Um, they're maybe feeling like they're the outcasts, they're the weirdos, they're the ones who are following this path and, you know, hearing and seeing things that people, other people just aren't 
seeing, mm. which is really cool. And which is part of, you know, this whole creative streak. That's, that's a big theme in the book because the main character yeah. is an artist. Uh, and that's one of the things that she relates to that, you know, there's a lot of discussions about, you know, what does creativity really mean? So uh, I think he's more saying that, you know, middle America is there, you know, working their hearts out to get the car and the wife and the picket fence. And what am I missing? Cause I don't want to end up there. I think, you know, uh, if he's describing yeah. that in that way, I mean, that's not really how I interpreted it when I was listening to it, you know, as a 20 something year old, but in hearing <laughs> him do give that explanation, that's what it's sounding yeah. like to me. You know, I don't want to be Mr. Yeah. Middle America, you know, mowing the lawn out there. I'm going to wake up one day and say, how did I get here? So wise, very insightful. I think that's right. It's a great point. You know, a lot of people who pursue art, it is about counterculture. It is about going against those prescribed norms of, okay, I graduate school and then I, you know, find somebody and then, you know, married and children, you know, that whole sort of prescribed path. I feel like a lot of people who pursue arts are like, I want to go in a different direction. And so, yeah, I think you're right. Maybe it's more about counterculture than class. I just also love that in the late 70s, early 80s, we're still also in a time of sampling other songs and like bringing them in to get people excited. Almost like you think of like um, uh, DJs mixing and sampling a ton today. Yeah. So uh, there's this like organ climax near in the in the like the last third of the song and it's a Hammond organ and they sample that climax from the Velvet Underground's What Goes On. Oh. So I, I totally dig that Talking Heads is sampling Velvet Underground in this song. I think it's very cool. <laughs> wow. And an organ of all things. That's what right. they chose to sample. Right. <laughs> I am learning a lot. You are both very good educators, I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> we do, you know, we're, we're those brown-nosing students who sit in the front of the class That's and bring right. an apple at Christmas time. You know, we're those kind of kids. That's right. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> What's really interesting is this song, when it comes out in the UK, does pretty well. It's a top 20 hit. But it doesn't really do well initially in the United States. But what really made it grow in popularity was the music video. Mm-hmm. Good mm-hmm. old MTV. So let's talk just a little bit about the music video. Uh, it was directed by David Byrne himself, along with Tony Basil as choreographer. <laughs> hey, Mickey, anyone? Yes, we I all read know that Tony I was Basil. Like, <laughs> right? I actually looked it up. I was like, this can't be the same person. There's no way. What? I was like, yeah. that's amazing. She's the lead singer of Hey, Mickey, You're So Fine. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. With cheerleaders and stamping. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Mickey, it's a pity. You don't no no oh, one God, will so ever so forget that. that. <laughs> Earworm. Yeah, that's a great earworm. Oh, my God. But so cool that she was also like, you know, I'm a star in my own right, but I'm also just going to be choreographing music videos for other artists. That's freaking cool. And um, It is very cool. So in addition to him, like, you know, leaning into the, the radio and listening to these preachers and sermons, they were also looking at footage of religious rituals from around the world, including evangelists, African, Japanese influences, people who were in trances. They were really looking at kind of, again, this like global, what do you want to call it? Almost like a performance for inspiration. And that's really where Byrne choreographed himself and... Tony actually said, she's like, I set up the camera. I put it in front of him. I asked him, hey, absorb all these ideas we've taken in. I left the room and he kind of did his own thing. And that's where we get those jerky, uh, unexpected movements that he's doing. This like 
I don't know. What would you even call it? Well, it's he's, like you know, he's the, the undulating. Classic one, <laughs> yeah, the classic one that like Kermit references when he does is sort of like chopping his forearm forward towards the wrist over and over again. Mm. There's one where he burns oh, yeah, down that, on the like, ground on his yeah. knees and sort of leaning over and <laughs> yeah, over again. Right. I've got to frame up now. It's right. It's got that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but in the same interview, Basil, she talks really interesting about how Byrne got into this, that he like had no interest in doing choreo- choreography for the music video. He wanted to study movement as almost like an actor does. And, and mm. Basil says she saw the same sort of curiosity from David Bowie and Mick Jagger. That like, it's not about dance. It's about like movement. Like mm. interpretation. Yeah, exactly. Mm. And so the two of them went over to both UCLA and USC and pulled up a bunch of documentaries of just religious practices around the world. And I just love picturing the two of them sitting like in these university libraries watching tribal dance videos from around the world. Mm-hmm. And he's just like, yeah, yeah, taking notes, nodding. Yeah, no, I like that. That's good. Yeah, I, I never Absolutely. would have thought that that it was so informed by the, all these different sources. I just kind of yeah. watched it and was like, he's whacked. He's, this is just, <laughs> he's a genius. He's wild. Yeah. Who else would yeah. do this? <laughs> Yeah, and then you kind of pair that with, uh, you know, Basil said she used like this old-fashioned zoom lens and really tried to make it look low budget, as she put it, about as low tech as you could get and still be broadcastable. I thought that was <laughs> really interesting. So the look of it, if you look at it, especially, you know, modern times, things are such high definition, it looks kind of blocky. And part of that, or maybe most of it, was actually on purpose. Back to Suzanne talking about like how how the publishing world is so full of critique and how many cooks are in the kitchen and how like hard that can be. Hey. That Basil went on like back when she was making music videos for David or Devo or whoever she was working with. Quote, there weren't record companies breathing down anyone's neck, telling them what to do, what the video should look like. There were no paranoid AR guys on set, no crazy dresser that would come in and decide what people should be wearing and put them in shoes they can't walk in. Everybody with their own agenda, we were all on our own. And so I think this is really interesting. Like, this feels like when we were kids with a video camera around our homes or apartments, like just making home movies, like you just showed up and did whatever you want and nobody was giving you a bunch of rules and different artistic visions. It sounds very freeing. Do you have any reaction to that, Suzanne, in, in the creation of your work? Well, first off, I think that, yeah, this this video and some of their work has kind of turned into like performance art. Like you can tell they're artists and not like in a pretentious way, but in an experimental way. I always thought that was really cool. And that came across, no matter what sources kind of informed these different movements and such, it came across that they were taking different influences and completely creating something unique that was just not seen before in this in this context. And it wasn't seen before because, like you said, we're the first ones to be able to fool around with, with videos and have a forum to put that, you know, on television, on MTV, what what have you. So, uh, mm-hmm. it, you know, there was there were no rules to follow because nobody else had done it. Uh, so, yeah. so that was great. And uh, um, now what you were asking me how this relates to the book, I'm trying to get back to like the first well, just like Question. you as a as a content creator, this idea of having like nine different peoples in the kitchen telling you what to do with different agendas versus oh, just like you being able to terrible. create free. Yeah, the thing is sometimes, I remember doing a post once, feeling just sometimes everything was better before all those people got to you. You know, when you could just yeah. like spout something out and not have rules and not have to do it in the way that's marketable. I'm doing air quotes, everybody. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> the way that's For marketable, sure. the way that, uh, you know, is going to uh, 
uh, accommodate the attention spans that have shrunk over the years where, yeah. you know, nobody wants to reel. And, and I'll, I'll be honest with you. This is called Once in a Lifetime because I was directed to choose a song or something that had uh, name recognition as opposed to the original ah. title, which was, excuse me, waitress, is that New Jersey? Oh, <laughs> see, that's, you're laughing. People, used to, people laughed it. every time I said it, but I was told, no, 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 that's too long. No one will remember it. You want something with name recognition, mm. etc. So they said, pick a name of a movie or a song. You can't um, copyright titles, which I know that I know knew was true from oh. I, I worked in the research department at Columbia Pictures in the 80s. Yeah. So, you know, so cool. legal team knew you, you can't copyright titles. So if I had to pick some kind of anthem or something that I thought represented this book, I went to this song, you know, for various reasons, which we can go into. I don't know if we need to do it. This is great foreshadowing. Yes, exactly. Okay. (laughs) Very excited. This is a great teaser. All right. So the year following this song coming out, the New York Museum of Modern Art did an exhibit called Performance Video. And this music video was one of the main installations in this art exhibit, which I thought was really cool. And the exhibit's main goal was to try and explain to parents what their kids were watching on MTV. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. Right up on the, How did I miss right? that? That was that MoMA. And so what year was that? <laughs> How, yeah. 1982 wow. at MoMA. And the little caption with it said that this music video expands upon the song's complex interweaving of moods and images, as well as Burns' interest in African music and percussion. But I love that this was just like a PSA for parents who didn't understand MTV. <laughs> it, it's great. That's perfect. That's absolutely perfect. Speaking of PSAs, Ben, we need a safety reminder because we're headed down to chemistry class. And there's all sorts of, there's bubbling beakers. There's a lot of nostalgic chemicals percolating in the air. So much so, if we're not careful, we might be burning down the house. So why don't we... Very good. That was my one joke. That was good. My one bad joke. I liked it. All right, let's get down to chemistry class and talk more about our experiences with the song and the music video. I love it. I'm going to kayak on this water flowing underground to get there. (laughs) There you go. Same as it ever was. Same as it ever was. Especially our humor. It's the same as it ever was. It never never improves. It never never improves. It never gets weirder. Well, as we normally like to open up with chemistry class, I'd love to hear our each of our earliest memories of either this song and or the Talking Heads as a musical group. Suzanne, you, of course, get to go first as our guest. Tell us early memories, Talking Heads, Once in a Lifetime. Hmm. Well, strangely, I don't know if I could pinpoint when I heard Once in a Lifetime. I remember the first time I heard somebody talking about the talking heads. We'll throw the the in the, in there. Uh, I am an English major. Uh, I had I had a friend who was an artist, and she was actually a very very smart girl. This is another thing. This was kind of brainy stuff. You know, it wasn't yeah. just artsy. It was very kind of intellectual. Uh, so I, I don't know. I think we might have like cut class at the end of the day or, or something. And I ended up in the car with her and she was showing me her sketchbook and she had certain songs and artists that she would just put the song on and just like scribble hmm. and sketch and write. And she cool. had scribblings on like songs from the B-52s and the Talking Heads. And there were songs that, you know, like I had heard of the bands, but I hadn't really heard the music yet. And I remember thinking, you know, if Laurie, the artist, is listening to this, this has got to be something I've got to hear about. And that probably was like 1980 or 1981. 
And I grew up on Long Island where, you know, the more that I learn about this music, the more that I hear that it was stations on Long, like, like WLIR on Long Island and K-Rock in California that were playing this stuff yeah. long before any, anybody else was. So I kind of feel proud of the fact that I was one of the, you know, the first audiences to hear this and support it. Uh, but started hearing this stuff, then we would go out to clubs and, uh, you know, mm. the drinking age was still only 18 then. So, you know, you could go out in high school <laughs> to, uh, you know, to a club and hear all this underground music. And so those are the first things that I remember hearing and seeing people dancing to the B-52s and wearing the little pencil skirts where you could only dance a certain yeah. way with like your knees kind of like bent in like that little <laughs> yeah. turned into like the Carlton dance. I think they, that started when like the B-52s and, you know, people were dressed in those little tiny skirts tight skirts and you couldn't really have a certain range of, of, of that's movement, a really good point. you know? <laughs> so that's what I remember. I love that. Ben, what about you? I think I hit the talking heads. I was late to the scene. Like we've talked about with some other music here and there. My earliest memory of this song specifically once in a lifetime, um, my neighborhood used to do a 4th of July sort of festival, bouncy houses, snow cones, uh, classic potato sack race, you know, eggs on spoons, relays, that kind of jazz. <laughs> and there was always karaoke at this event. And I definitely remember two songs one summer being sang at this. One was It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. <laughs> it's the end of the world, all the lyrics. But it was like a bunch of like nine-year-olds trying to keep up to like, listen to the world bird. Blah, 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 <laughs> impossible. Yeah. Um, and this song, Once in a Lifetime, somebody sang that. And they had the music video playing with whatever learned was not early green screen, early blue screen, that like water in the beginning. That was supposed to be water. When I first watched the music video researching for this, I was like, mm -hmm. what is behind David? Somebody clean up the screen. That's supposed to be water. That's what CG water was in 1981. But I think that's it, was was karaoke at, like, the neighborhood 4th of July event. You know, the discography of the Talking Heads shows up in so many movies and television from the 80s. I mean, Burning Down the House is in everything, Psycho Killer. But I think that's where I found it. Was your first introduction to the song as a backup dancer on Basil's Mickey? I honestly do not remember when I first heard this song. My earliest recollection of a talking head song is actually the movie revenge of the nerds my brother oh, and i wow. loved that movie as kids when it came out and burning down the house is on that because like oh, i think yeah. a fraternity or sorority house actually catches on fire during like a party and the song burning down the house is playing and so that's one of the earliest things i can remember of talking heads but i don't know if i can actually recall knowing this song. I'm sure I heard it, but like, I just don't have that flashbulb memory. And so it, it's one of those songs when I heard the title, I was like, I bet I know the song and I just never put two and two together. And I started listening. I was like, of course I know this song, but it's one of those where it was just like kind of in the periphery. So it was nice to, when doing this show, learn more about it and, and kind of fill in a lot of those blanks. Cause I, I don't know a ton about the talking heads. I do want to say like nine times in the run of 80s high, I wanted to do Revenge of the Nerds you did. as the movie. <laughs> but our math class of Does It Hold Up Today would be oh, so long that, that I just was like, nah, I can't balance the show. Yeah, we just have to go straight to math class and do an hour and a half like, this is problematic. Okay, that's so problematic. Yeah. But it's so funny. It is so <laughs> funny. Where do we go from here? Like, what's important to talk about in terms of this song? Obviously, there's a lot of people who put a lot of thought into what did these lyrics mean suzanne to your point it is a brainy song because it's it's getting into stuff uh well to quote the character share 
from the movie Clueless. It's way existential. Way existential. (laughs) It's true. Not only in the questions he's kind of asking, the way he's asking the questions, it's almost like he's asking us, but he's asking himself and he's asking no one, right? Like it's just throwing out, again, I guess it's kind of like a preacher call and response with the congregation. I don't know if we want to talk a little bit about that, like what the song means to us. There's a lot of interesting lyrics. What do you guys think? I think it's kind of open-ended, the way he he asks all these questions. Uh, Mm. I think it's obvious on the surface that this was a song about somebody who was having some kind of midlife crisis. But as Mm. a young person listening to it, I still identified with just the identity crisis. I think it was more... Mm where the heck am I going and how am I going to get there? Which once again, I think relates to what, what the impetus that is going on in this book where you're, you're at that moment where you're kind of coming of age and you're, you're trying to figure out, all right, what am I going to do with my life? And, you know, just having somebody shout like that in the middle of the song, how did I get here? My God, what have I done? That, that just was, you know, we just wanted to plaster that all over the walls and have, <laughs> you know, we lived by song lyrics. And uh, sadly, you know, like I said, the legal department, uh, you know, taught me at Columbia Pictures, you can't use song lyrics. <laughs> and, uh, you know, they yeah. cost a ton of money. So we could not have the girls spouting song lyrics as much as uh, I wanted them to. So I had to find a way to communicate that with my own language which is a challenge when you're trying to reproduce something that was, you know, created by somebody with the talent level of David Byrne and all these people that he had supporting him. But yeah, to me, it kind of meant, you know, when you're out there in the world for the first time and you're kind of like, where am I going? What, what is going to happen with my life when this is all over and I'm out of this, you know, funk, where am I going to be? Am I going to turn around and say, how the hell did I get here? Yeah. I'm going to pause for a second. You literally could not write these words in the way that he said them in your book. No, well, not well, you can, but you would have to pay tons of royalties. Right. The thing, because I it's his intellectual property. Yeah. It, you can't use, you can't use song lyrics. You can't quote other people. I think, you know, certain amount of, unless it's in the public domain. Right. I mean, because I, I knew about like, you can't play music or even like sing the happy birthday song, right? Like there's all that it's stuff. True. I didn't if know you that even just the words. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So, whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on. All Fascinating. Right. So the girls move into this dumpy apartment. There's a coffee mm. pot in the corner. They're trying to plug it in. And one says, how do I work this? How much do you have to pay <laughs> to the record company? Because it's a burn lyric. Uh, well... In this case, where the book is named after that song, they might put two and two together. If the song had nothing to do, you know, was not referenced so heavily, and they said, how do I work this? It might not mean too much. And now I'm not a lawyer. I did, you know, work kind of, uh, I think they called me a paralegal, even though I wasn't, like, certified or anything, but I'm not a lawyer. (laughs) So I couldn't really tell you exactly, you know, whether, whether you'd get away with that. But there are references to songs and to lyrics without using the actual phrasing right you do have to be clever and you do have to not you know not step on the toes of the people who actually created these words as you know you have to you sort of pay tribute to them without ripping them off i guess is the goal right when it so shapes what's going on in the story though because that's those are the things that influence the characters it's it's hard to work around so well and it's so strange because and i totally understand the legal protections about it i get it 
But in normal conversations with normal people, people quote things. People quote movies. People quote right. music all the time. And for to have a group of friends who love music so much, it's strange that they never quote the music they love or they all sing along. And not that there's any problem. I'm not critiquing the writing. I'm just saying that this legal hurdle creates a a problem of making characters more believable. Yeah, right. It does affect the authenticity because in the moment they would have been quoting the lyrics, but instead they're kind of talking about the lyrics. Yeah. Chris, it sort of reminds me of the workaround has to be like when we talked about Battleship, like Knockbusters. <laughs> like you have to write a similar lyric so you don't get in trouble. Like, so I'm saying like, you know, and you may question yourself, where is that <laughs> immense vehicle? Like, It's question it's thine self. You have to question thine self. Legal yes. says we have to say thine self. It's yeah. ridiculous. Why do that? That is so fascinating. Music is such a, um, music and movies, I feel like, are such a, interesting place for intellectual property. I'd love to kind of dive more into that because I feel like it's different than other forms of artistic expression. And on one hand, it's great for protecting artists, but it's also some of it feels a little schemey from like the companies that are kind of running the industry. There's people who are out there trying to, you know, copyright the word bacon or, you know, that that it gets a little out of hand because how can you how can you copyright, you know, hello, goodbye? You know, I mean, it was a Beatles song. You know, right. like, where do you draw the line? I'm not really sure. I just do know that I, you could use titles. So when that was appropriate, I did. And it only gets to be harder when there's a song that everybody recognizes by the chorus instead of the title. Like, you don't know how badly I wanted to use, <laughs> you know, I might like you better if we slept together or something like that, which was not the yeah. title of that song. <laughs> right. So you have to fake it in those cases. Well, and we were joking, but I think like, did it last year, the Ohio State try and copyright the? I thought that was a thing where they tried to do. They were trying to get ownership of, oh no, yeah. I wouldn't doubt it. June 24th this year, Ohio State secures the trademark for the word the and used with the university. Like, come on. Now you're taking our participles. Get out of here. You can take my verbs, but you'll never take my participles. exclamation I think uh, Emerald and somebody else are fighting one of the drag queens at RuPaul I think are fighting over the word BAM so oh my god (laughs) don't stamp on all of our joy we're just trying to create joyful (laughs) expressions here oh man I sincerely would love your both your input on something to help me figure something out so the overall purpose of the song makes sense I get that I got it before I read David's explanation we'll get to that in a second I get the verses. The verses all are pretty straightforward. That makes sense. What I couldn't find in my research, and I'm just wondering if either of you know or you can intuit, is sort of all the water verbiage and visualization that Byrne uses. And it, primarily it always comes up in the chorus. There's some in the bridge. But in the chorus, for those who don't remember the song or aren't playing it right now, letting the days go by, let the water hold me down. Letting the days go by, water flowing underground. Into the blue again after the money's gone. Once in a lifetime, water flowing underground. What's with the water? For me, first off, I kind of felt like this was like images poetry. I didn't really feel like yeah. it had mm. to make sense from one sentence to the next, especially when it's all kind of that different people are singing at the same time or he's singing over himself. You know, this kind of like um earthy vision of life is a river and it is flowing over you and we are all just river mm. stones and that kind of thing. To me, that's what I thought they were trying to say. And I don't know that I ever took too many of these, the, the lyrics of these songs completely literally. And that was okay with me. You know, like I liked them being a little mysterious and poetic. Yeah. Looking back on some of them, I'm like, what the heck were they talking about? 
like, all these lyrics from like Steely Dan or from the cars that I thought were really mysterious and cool. Oh, I now kind of yeah. look back and I was like, well, I, I gave them a lot of leeway in that. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't make as much sense yeah. to me now. But that's kind of how I felt about it at, at the time. And I liked the references to water and the sound, the, the, he almost mm. sounded like he was drowning. When he's doing water, 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 When in the music video, he's like sweating profusely. He's like very wet and he looks <laughs> sure frenzied is. in a lot yeah. of ways. Yeah. Right. I got the water in that like staticky blue stuff in the beginning. I thought that was water yeah. like yeah. kind of electronic water. Yeah, exactly. A, re- a representation of water rather than the water itself. I think for me to, and I wouldn't have put this together until researching for this episode, but one of them, I feel like if he's trying to emulate preachers, there's a usage of water, baptism, you know, things of that nature, there you go. where I, I wonder if there's an aspect of that. And then Suzanne, to your point, like I saw it as water being both like a healing, life-sustaining, but also a life-taking uh, of the four elements, if you will. And that the drowning metaphor, water holding me down, to me, sounds terrifying. It sounds like I'm being yeah. held underwater, suffocating. And so for me, that was the imagery that came up. But I think to Suzanne's point, I don't know that there is a, a specific literal meaning, especially knowing that he was just kind of making some of this up as he was going. And it was done in this very kind of communal uh, stream of consciousness way. And we don't quite know where it came from, you know? Okay, I can dig it. I can get on board with no one's really sure. But I like it. I like your interpretations of it. It's good. To a certain extent, when, and Suzanne, I'd be curious on your thoughts on this, you know, when a creator puts something out there, they have their own intentions behind it. They have their own meaning that they've kind of imbued into it. But once you put it out there for people to enjoy, they're going to imprint their own thoughts and feelings and experiences on it. In some ways, it's not fully yours anymore because other people are going to take it. They're going to look at your words, but they're going to have a different meaning for it. And so when Byrne is like, well, it's not really about yuppie greed. It's more about the unconscious. Other, someone else is going to be like, well, that's not what it meant to me. And so I think part of the joy of it is you do kind of give that to other people to say, you experience it in the way, however you will. And if it has meaning for you in a different way, that's great. I think it's better that way. Not just uh, it, it's better. it's a better experience for us. I think that means that uh, I think it takes a lot of talent to be able to create something, uh, you know, simple language that then has layers of meaning for different people. Mm. Yeah. It's skillful. I think that's the sign of poetry that resonates with people. And it's impressive that Byrne, I think early on said, like, he's writing this song about his perception of the blueprint for the middle class lifestyle. So he's even Mm. trying to write a song, not about his own experience. And they always say, write what you know. And it's not what he knows. He's writing about what he thinks others or millions of people are going through, Mm. uh, which makes it really accessible. And and I don't know, a brave move, I think, to like write about not your own experience, but actually get pretty close. Mm. Do you want to, I mean, this goes contrary to what both of you just said, but do you want to read what Burns said the song is actually about? Of course. Might as well hear it. (laughs) Right. It's all good for us to interpret it. Uh, But David did say that the song is about how we as people tend to operate half awake or on autopilot. And that when you say like, and you might ask yourself, it's supposed to be these moments of lucidity where you kind of shake your head out of your daily grind and look around and be like, how did I ever get to this part where I have this house? Or how do I have this car? How's this my my partner, my beautiful wife? And so it's just how you can get into that rhythm and your life goes by without you really feeling like you are uh, have agency in making it happen. But I have a question for both of you now. 
trying to like see some symbolism and meaning in all of this stuff. Burns saying that, and then this idea that the whole song is built on repetition, it's built on this cycle of questioning. Where does once in a lifetime come into play as a title? Because to me, that sounds like I've got my one chance. I got to shoot my shot. I got to take my, you know, this is my one big moment to make it big. You're, and you're, uh, eight, you're Eminem's eight mile. This exactly. is your one chance. <laughs> the music, the moments, better never let it go, right? Like all that stuff. Like it sounds like it's like this is your one thing, but so much of this song is built on, again, that sense of repetition and we've been here before. And I, I don't know, like I'm still kind of perplexed by the title in the meaning of the song that both. Burn has, but other people as well. Because to me, it almost feels like there's multiple uh, entry and exit points where you could get into or out of this lifestyle. Do either of you have thoughts on that? To me, it kind of feels like to say once in a lifetime, maybe that's a moment of epiphany, you know, where you stop mm-hmm. and realize this has been going on the same way all this time. I would agree if you really, if you kind of pick it apart and say, well, then why is this the title of the song? I don't know. Maybe it's ironic. And like I said, they're kind of poets. (laughs) And everything doesn't have to be kind of in your face and literal. And that's what I kind of felt about it. Once in a lifetime, you only get one life. And there you are. You get to the, you know, the end of it. Sit around and say, what? Wait, wait a minute. What happened? How did I get here? I think you're right. Like, that's the only thing that makes sense to me. It's kind of like, um, what's that Beatles song? Tomorrow Never Knows. It's intriguing, but it Mm -hmm. really makes no sense. Like, it's almost like that. It's just like, it's a fascinating title. And maybe it is a bit counter to the message in it. Um, Or it is that just kind of like, you do wake up out of this trance and then you have an epiphany. Other thoughts, Ben? You thought I was joking. But in our last episode, we did board games from the 80s. Yeah. And I said there's a through line here with 1860s, the game of life, to once in a lifetime, because the game of life is all about trying to follow the prescribed steps that society expects you to hit. Sure. College, marriage, house, jobs, kids. I'm like, oh my God, this is the story behind once in a lifetime. I would love in the game of life if you pulled your car over and your driver's like, wait, this isn't my beautiful house. This isn't my beautiful life. How did I get here? Like, but they can't write is. that because it's against, they'd have to oh, pay right. for they the rights. They get sued. They get sued out of existence. Yeah, Milton Bradley, Milton Bradley would go be destroyed. <laughs> but if, if you look at that board, it is very twisty and turny. And then, of course, yeah. you've got that big thing in the middle where you spin it and it's just all blurry. Yeah. And- <laughs> I want to listen to the Talking Heads next time we play The, the Game, Game of Life. life. I feel like it would be really Perfect. good. I think it's very fitting. Oh, man. Are there other things we want to talk about with our experience? Is there anything we need to talk about with the music video and how it was done? We've talked about some of those elements. Is there anything else there that really stood out as like cool or like I didn't get it? So the music video did get really heavy rotation on MTV. Again, these are like early days of MTV. So like there's only right. four or five songs to choose from. So they're on all the <laughs> time. And Pat Benatar and what is it? The uh, yeah. Dire Straits. Yeah. Right. Yeah, so those like, three oh, songs for nothing. Like, that's over right. and over yeah. again. <laughs> you know, I talked about it, it is it is big on blue screen. And I do actually want to do the Dire Straits song eventually because like you look at the blue screen in this to like what they did with computer graphics, it is really interesting evolution in music. Well, or even Peter telling. Gabriel, we talked about the Sledgehammer video. That's, that's another video. one. Oh my oh, god. That was a great one, yeah. So it's a weird I think the music video is interesting because it's uh, you know, even when it came out, it was viewed as very odd and strange. And even now when you watch it, it's odd and strange. But it's sure. so it's creative in such a different way. Like I, I've talked about this before where I love the band OK Go 
for their music mm. videos. It's so creative. Exactly. What they do with, you know, these endless, these one-shot camera shots and these great giant um, Rube Goldberg machines. It's incredible. That's a different type of creativity here where I love that David like went and like studied all these different ritualistic practices and sort of integrated into this music video. And because of the pacing of the music video and what's happening, I think it's interesting that you don't really know what's going to happen next. And I think that makes it fun. Like it's not a clear story of like boy meets girl and here are their dates and here's the breakup and here's the triumph and get back together of like every 90s music video we ever saw. This is like really interesting of like, what is the next shot? What is he going to be doing? Where's this song going? There is some fun directorial things happening thanks to um, Basil's, I think a lot of Basil's direction too. What do you two think about the music video? In general, I think David Byrne contributed a lot to what happened in this era where you could be this really off the wall, odd mm you know, strange experimental artist and have it be, now that's becoming the mainstream type of culture. And yeah. I liked it at the time being kind of an artsy, you know, poetic bohemian type at the time. I felt like if people like this and like Devo and uh, Lehman Lovich and all these people who are doing all this weird stuff could break all these rules, you're kind of free, you know, like, yeah. Once people look at you like, oh, you're one of those weird new wave people. Okay, so I'm a weird new wave people and I can do whatever the hell I want. Yeah. <laughs> I was artsy and I was not like your average Joe kid. And to me, it was just nice to know that it was allowed. I can do it. It's even, it's sanctioned. It's, you can be successful this way. It was just fun to know that you could be free. You were just free to do that. You know, I'm feeling a little bit of uh, your voice coming through one of your characters in like the <laughs> last quarter of your book. There's one of the performers that they go to the club with. I'm, I'm forgetting the character's name, <gasps> yeah. but he talks about like his name is now Ty. that I've made this. Yeah, thank you that I've made this choice in life that this is what I'm doing. I am as free as you can get. I've broken all the rules, so I can break all the rest right. of them now. Like that's that's a terrible paraphrase of the dialogue you wrote, but I, I hear your opinion coming through your character now. That's great. Yeah, that, that's true. That's kind of a, a different angle. I think she relates that then back as she's thinking about it to New Wave. I think there was this moment she said, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of similar. It's not, it's, it's not the same level of, of commitment <laughs> because that character was a drag queen. But in any case, she says, you know, when you walk into a restaurant with your boyfriend and you're in, you know, fishnets and a leopard spotted skirt. Right. They're just happy that you don't like, you know, break the windows and just start <laughs> like you're kind of outside society's rules, you know? So Yeah. This kind of reminds me of Weird Al Yankovic. We that's one of the uh, our season two closer was about Al, and a lot of it was somebody who's kind of off the wall and out there getting mainstream acceptance. And I feel like people who felt like they were that kind of person seeing themselves in a performer who could be successful and saying like, oh, wait a second, this person found a way and is now on MTV and getting, you know, record deals and, and finding some success. Like, I, I think there's something to be said about people who can be in mainstream, but also be kind of counter to it at the same time. And uh, that to me is always fun and inspiring. And so while I don't remember this song or much about the Talking Heads as a kid, again, outside of that uh, <laughs> Revenge of the Nerds experience and knowing that song, it's cool that you could see this guy on there putting clearly his heart and soul into 
something that people might laugh at him for, but he's laughing to the bank with yeah. all of his success. <laughs> and, you know, yeah. And, and I think that's cool. I love that. Chris, we've talked a lot about this little niche unknown band talking heads, but everyone came here to hear about the internationally acclaimed author, Suzanne Mataboni. Can we Ooh. get to contemporary culture and talk about the book already? <laughs> you know, Ben, you may ask yourself, how can I end the stomach rumbling? And you may find yourself wondering what part of school we go to next. Oh, my God. I can answer both of those for you because it is lunchtime, everybody. Let's hit the cafeteria. Let's refuel. And when we come back from lunch, we're going to contemporary culture where we're going to get. We've talked about it. We've teased it. We've referenced it. Let's learn more about the book Once in a Lifetime that got some of its inspiration. But we learned today was not the original title. But nevertheless, we want to hear more about this song, this group, and other inspirations on Suzanne's work. So we'll catch you after lunch. You don't have to be 19 to have a body like this. You don't have to work out eight hours a day. You don't have to be narcissistic or shallow. In fact, all you really need is $39 a month. The Soloflex muscle machine. What are you waiting for? Come on in, bring your appetite. Ponderosa, help yourself and the feeling's right. Introducing our ship-to-shore dinner. A charbroiled ribeye steak plus our tasty shrimp to go with it. It comes with all the extras included for just $4.49. Chicken seafood charbroiled steak. Okay, we're back from lunch. Before we get to you, Suzanne, I want to talk about your book, but there's just a little bit. We're going to close out the talking heads because unfortunately they do not last long past the 80s. Yeah. They disband in 1991, kind of. Burns sort of announces that the band broke up and I think the other bandmates were like, I'm sorry, what now? As far as I can tell, he just kind of leaves. And I think they learn about it like in an interview, which is very weird. I I, I don't fully know that. So again... If our detractors, looking at you, Jerry, if Jerry comes after us, maybe we're going to have to uh, oh retract God. retract the comment. But that's what I read, which is crazy to me. Um, so 1991, Talking Heads is done. But the other band members are like, we still want to perform. So they actually performed, this is great, under the name Shrunken Heads, which I thought was that's funny. freaking <laughs> hilarious. That's great. That's really great. That is. That's good. And then they released an album called No Talking, Just Head as The Heads in 1996. No Talking, Just Head? Uh, just Head. So, you know. Wow. There's a parental. Interpret lyrics for yourself as you will, as we've said. <laughs> sure. My goodness gracious. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, Bernard said that further work with the group was unlikely. He said it was due to bad blood and musically being miles apart. Weymouth, the bassist, she had said that she's been pretty critical of Byrne, and she said he is a man incapable of returning friendship. Oh, Ouch. No. Ouch, yeah. That's a burn. That's yeah. Oh, that's a burn about burn. That's yeah. Really hard. That's a burn. That's burn. burn. It's a burn. Burn. <laughs> yeah, and she said he doesn't love her, France, and Harrison. So that's. A scathing indictment? I mean, she's not really dropping like a a nasty word. She's just speaking some truth. But I was like, that that made it all the more biting. 
Ouch. Even though they're around for basically, what was that? I got a math in my head. About 16 years, is that right? Yeah. They've influenced a lot of bands, and not bands that you would expect. It's kind of across the board. So Eddie Vedder, Pearl Jam, Trent Reznor, Nine Inch Nails, Nelly Furtado, Kesha, Radiohead, Vampire Weekend, The Weekend. That's a pretty, (laughs) that's a pretty... It's a good diverse group of artists and bands. I thought that was really interesting. And there's more, but those were some that kind of stood out to me of like, that's a that's a, quite a cross section. But again, maybe speaking to the the point of they brought in so much influence that different bands with different styles could see something that worked for them, which I thought was really cool. Uh, ben, you want to talk a little bit about some accolades that the band and the song and maybe the album received you have those handy yeah, right let me, now let me run through it uh you know i will say we did skip one in chemistry really fast uh, and suzanne referenced it this was covered by none other than when the kermit the frog well let's just jump to that real quick let's just jump to that real quick okay we'll come back to accolades yeah but 1986 kermit sang it on muppets tonight yeah which was like uh and it's not like a silly mocking version of it it's like he really just sings the song and he's in the big white suit and he kills it Can I just say, you know, video comments on YouTube or comments anywhere are always very challenging. I saw this on a channel called Laser Time, and the comments were delightful. Oh, good. I only want to read the top comment because I think it speaks it perfectly. (laughs) And this was from user T-Lark that said, The thing I truly love about the Once in a Lifetime music video is that it's one of the few music videos that gets less weird by having Kermit the Frog perform it. Boom. (laughs) I couldn't agree more. That's great. That's that is great. Fun. I was and like, also, uh-huh. truth. I love Muppet New Wave mashups. I don't know. They had Debbie <laughs> Harry on the Muppet Show one year. It was great. Yes. Yeah. Yes. We need more of it. All right. So some accolades. So uh, yeah. 1986, a live version of the song just charts. It makes the Billboard Hot 100. But then it takes, weirdly enough, like a long time. If this song came out 80, uh, it's around the turn of the millennium. We start to see some real recognition happen. That's Mm. in 2002 when it's finally uh, the Talking Heads are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2002. That's right. And the Hall of Fame uh, listed as one of this song specifically as one of the 500 songs that shaped rock and roll. Yay. So NPR named Once in a Lifetime one of the 100 most important American musical works of the 20th century. Mm-hmm. And last but not least, you know, NPR, I think most people got their like rock and like new wave information from NPR. You might have heard about this little rag, <laughs> Rolling Stone. What, what's so it Rolling called? Stone. Rolling uh, Stone? Yeah, picture like a rock that's fallen down a hill and it's oh, going. Um, I'll just go with that. I don't know. I'll just, just go with me there for a little bit. The uh, Rolling Stone ranks it as number 27. On last year's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, that's right. a pretty good accolade from Rolling Stone magazine. I like that. I like that throw out. That's well, great. I, I yeah. find it really like the supreme irony in the music industry is that these songs at the time you could not get anybody to play them on mainstream radio. You kind of nah. had to search, like you were mentioning before. You had to like search through record stores and uh, you know f- find the your you know special LP version, you know long play version of this or the one that they did for the the clubs. Or you would see it when you were out dancing. They would play the video. You know they they didn't. It wasn't everywhere, but now everybody knows the songs. Now you can hear like Gary Newman songs in a Walmart video and, you know, it's not straight. You couldn't get them to play it on WBLI on, in New York, you know? So uh, it's very vindicating for those of us who did do all that searching in order to listen oh, yeah. to this music. 
Well, and we're going to get to it, but I feel like you've gone through that. When uh, I, I love the scene when Wit and Jess are in the record shop <laughs> and he finds like this off-market tape of what, what to me sounds like proto-jackass. <laughs> like a couple of guys beating each other up on camera. Oh, that yeah. Was, like his favorite group. <laughs> that was kind of that. Did you ever see the show? Did you ever see the show The, the Young Ones? Back, I think they played it on no. MTV in, in the 80s. But it was an oh. English, uh, I don't want to say sitcom. It was bizarre. It was a bizarre, like, quartet of of weird punk rock students and it was bizarrely very strangely funny but that was in fact their act for the two of the those guys um and so you know in the book he has this bootleg tape of them but that is a reference to an actual comedy scene oh that's awesome okay i love finding the the, where all the ideas came from that's great yeah yeah (laughs) let's get to you suzanne we want to talk more about your book once in a lifetime and so One might say your main character, Jessica, shares the same sentiment as David Byrne to quote, to hell with the American dream, I want a reason to kick and scream. That could almost be exactly what, I mean, he's kind of kicking and screaming. Again, he's doing the little herky-jerky movements in the music video, but I think it kind of uh, maps so well onto your book. So tell us about your book, Once in a Lifetime. What is the story? Who is Jessica? Jessica is an art student who can't wait to get out there in the world and get her life and her career started. Uh, and she's dying to go to a study abroad program in London uh, because she's obsessed with new wave music, as we've been talking about through this whole mm-hmm. conversation. And that's really where everything is happening in, in the new wave world is in, in London. Uh, so she wants to go there to go overseas and soak up all this culture and go to this dream art program. She's a mosaic glass artist. Uh, but she can't afford it because she's just a working class kid. So her and her kind of avant-garde fun roommates uh, take her off to New Hope, Pennsylvania, uh, which is a very artsy, progressive tourist town um, on the Delaware River in Pennsylvania on the border of New Jersey. And so she wants to waitress and save tips and do double shifts. And she's very ambitious in making sure that she's going to get this tuition and she's going to get to this program. And so in the meantime, she wants to find out as much as she can about, you know, the real world that's out there. They end up going through a lot of uh, adventures at punk clubs and, uh, you know, meeting different performers. So one of her colleagues at the restaurant, as I mentioned, is a, is a drag performer and, you know, they get to be buddies and she meets a new wave guitar player who then becomes the, you know, shiny new toy love interest. And, you know, they get into all sorts of trouble and to keep things spoiler free, it's kind of, um, you know, a love triangle as far as the hometown boyfriend who said to her, well, if you're so, you know, gung-ho to get out of this country, then maybe we should spend some time apart. And seeing the contrast between those two relationships as she goes forward. And uh, she's the type that is so focused and so ambitious that she finds herself maybe alienating the relationships in her life, especially the romantic relationships. Because, all right, here in the 80s, they kind of told women, you can have it all. You can be out there and have, you know, friendships and relationships and sex and education. And and you can go to college. You can be whatever you want. You can have it all. It's the me decade. But then you jump out there and you try to get it all. And you realize that maybe not everybody is ready for you to have it all. And maybe you can have it all, at least not all at once. And Mm -hmm. these are the lessons that you kind of have to learn as you're on that precipice, you know? So once again, that's that moment of, okay, I have to figure out where I'm going and how do I get there? And I want to get there now. But, you know, maybe you find out that 
it's going to take some time. That's great. You know, uh, looking at some of the characterizations of the book, one said if the Breakfast Club and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants had a love <laughs> child, it would be this book. I love that reviewer. Isn't that great? Yeah. Another one was Sweet Bitter, which I'm going to have to be honest. I had to look up Sweet Bitter. It looks like a more modern television show if I if I read correctly. If Sweet Bitter meets Bridget Jones in a John Hughes movie. That's a lot of inception oh, going on yeah. there. I love wow. it. Once in a Lifetime plays against a vibrant 80s background. Everything from slam dancers and rubber jelly shoes to social anarchy and AIDS. I, I love those characterizations of the book. I guess in your own words, can you talk about what influenced the book? Were these actual influences or are these other people taking their own experiences and putting them on onto your work? Uh, but what are your influences of this book? We've talked about some of them, of the story that you created uh, and or of the characters. Well, let's see. I definitely was that girl who wanted to jump out into the world and see what was happening and not hmm. be, I never wanted anybody to turn around and look at me like I was naive. It, you always have to kind of start out being naive. I mean, it's just kind of what happens. But I kind of felt like if you want to be a creative person, you have to get out there and live and, and know other people and other cultures and other lifestyles other than what you've grown up with. And it mm. was kind of ironic where, uh, you know, people, a lot of times they'll start out in a little small town and they'll say, I want to go to the big city. Well, uh, you know, I kind of was born, you know, 40 miles from one of the biggest cities in the country uh, since I was on Long Island. And that was kind of all I ever knew. And New York City to me at the time just kind of felt like so big and cavernous and scary. And, you know, it was a little rough in the 70s and 80s, New York City, much more mm -hmm. so than it is now. So mm -hmm. I wanted to get out and find something else. And so I went and visited other states and wanted to go to other countries and, you know, kind of felt like the world is out there and all this stuff is happening and it's happening without me. And that's just can't, that's just not right. <laughs> Unacceptable. <laughs> So that's that's where this came from, you know, trying to get out there and and live and find new things and and new passions. You know, then you come up a lot of, against a lot of obstacles when you do that. That's the moment I think is most interesting in, in people's lives. Deciding exactly what you want and getting out there and trying to get it. Absolutely. So like riffing off of something you just said, you know, Jess has this voracious need to create out of destruction. Like when something falls and breaks, she needs to make it into something. Or if there's like a bad water leak on the apartment wall, she wants to turn it into a painting. And it comes into this actually quite deep reflection later on from her friends of like, that's kind of what you're doing in your life. You don't need to keep remixing everybody into new people. Like leave us alone kind of thing. <laughs> But, like, do you have that voracious need to create? Like, are you always looking for opportunity to create? Or is this, like, a friend or a family member that you kind of wrote into the book? No, that's me with the creating things. And I've kind of found different ways to channel that over the years. Like I said, I did kind of get away from fiction for a while. But I've, I've always been the type, I mean, I, there were so many different things that I wanted to be and do when I was a young person that it was really kind of confusing because you can't do it all. <laughs> you only have one yeah. life. So, you know, I tried to write and I used to sing and cover bands and I draw and I used to write poetry and I just like did everything. But you have to kind of focus after a while. And even in, in saying for a while, okay, you know what? 
I, I can't be a tortured soul anymore because it's driving me nuts. And I would, <laughs> I think if I did this, you know, kept, kept this up as a young person, I would have been one of those people who like jumped out a window at 27. Cause you know, you couldn't <laughs> handle it. After a while. So I decided I would have a normal life. But even then I was that like young mom who was like drawing murals for my kid's birthday party and like bringing in like tubs of like fish for them to go fishing and kind of, you know, drawing, <laughs> making paper mache pinatas and like doing all these crazy things and volunteering to be a camp counselor and, you know, creating the Eiffel Tower out of refrigerator boxes. We just went nuts. But I always had to be doing something and making something, Mm. even if it was just for my kids. That's awesome. I love that. (laughs) It was fun. (laughs) And kind of coming back to the song for a second, you surprisingly said that Once in a Lifetime was not the title of this book. I guess in my mind, that was kind of like... Not that you have to start with a book title, but in some way, because it does kind of fit very nicely with this idea of finding yourself and and coming into your own and trying to go for this program that you want to and, and shooting for that goal. Thematically, it just seemed to make so much sense. So I'd love to hear, like, was this song, were the Talking Heads a part of it initially, or did you have to actually backtrack to fit that in? Because I imagine you're just scrolling through an endless catalog of song titles. This particular song was pretty intrinsic to this group of girls, this group of characters. Okay. And I really think that uh, looking back, that was kind of this, that's kind of the soundtrack of their lives. And Mm. they did at one point (laughs) create their own poster with this lyrics and tape it to the ceiling so that they could kind of, you know, look up at after a night of, you know, craziness, look up at this and kind of see, okay, what have I done? Right. (laughs) So that, (laughs) that was always part of the book and the scene and the lyrics that were in their heads. Uh, That's not to say that. Uh, you know, I didn't, this is the thing, when you're a very creative person, you don't want to be derivative and use somebody else's title. You want to come up with your own. So it's not like I dissed the title. It was that I was very happy to come up with something that nobody else was going to duplicate, which, excuse me, waitress, you know, was pretty unique. (laughs) But I hate to say, once again, when we've been talking about the dynamic in these kind of more corporate business marketing environments, it doesn't always serve you to be unique and original. It serves you to be reminiscent of something else that's already successful. So Mm. thereby, you know, pick out a title that has some kind of name recognition, Suzanne. Uh, So if I had to go with a title, this was the top runner. Maybe David Bowie's Young Americans would have fit. Mm. Oh, sure. Yeah. 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 And they do make an early reference to that song as well. And all the chapter titles have song titles, you know, are attached to them that are relative to what's going on in the, in the chapter. Uh, so I was able to go through that process again and again throughout the book, uh, which was fun, which I love. <laughs> well, in, in every scene too, you mentioned the, the idea of a soundtrack and I felt like every scene I was reading, you do mention this song that's going on in the background, whether at their club or they are at the apartment and they're kind of just having a fun night together. Even though you can't hear it, I could envision it in my head when you were like, you know, they're, they were doing this to the sound of, you know, this, or they were listening to David Byrne's lyrics and being inspired. Like, I, I found that part very fun. And I just think of movies that do that really well, where they have kind of a character soundtrack. And I like that you were able to translate that into, you know, a purely visual medium, which I imagine is kind of challenging to do. 
it's so much easier when you can just get the rights and you can drop the song and, you know, as your characters are going through New York city or running this way or doing that. But, but in your case, you had to, you know, find a way to do it. And apparently not write one freaking lyric down because you had to pay for it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was. And, and tremendously, you know, that they're, um, they're huge costs. Oh, to sure. that. But um, <laughs> oh, yeah. I'm glad that that was successful. It was kind of a challenge. Uh, it is in my head. It's all very, visual like i think it would make a really good movie if anybody's listening producers but in any yeah. case, <laughs> but in any case i do kind of see it all happening in my head as if it's a yeah. movie with a soundtrack but it's kind of strange i had originally thought to myself well maybe i should just put together a spotify playlist and we'll have an electronic version of this and we'll link to oh. all the songs throughout but yeah. i, I kind of now it, it sounded like a brilliant idea but then in the end, I kind of felt like when you read the book and the way that I write, it has a very specific rhythm to it. You know, like I kind of learned to write in a program where they kind of teach you to do like literary fiction. And so it has kind of has that like poetic bit of literary feel to it where there's a, a rhythm to it and it kind of sucks you in. Mm. And if you are listening to music, that has a different rhythm. And I think you don't really get the same effect of the writing if you're actually listening to the music as opposed to reading it and then maybe hearing it in the back of your head. So that's what I stuck to. Speaking of like really clear visuals in your head. So my first summer job ever was waiting tables at the 50s diner, Johnny Rockets, the chain that's around the, <laughs> the country. And your writing in the book seems to suggest you know that environment. You know waiting tables. There's so much detail you know. Was that a summer job for you or, or many summers? Did you work in in a restaurant? Yeah, I, I worked in various restaurants. Um, first, I was I was introduced to that by roommates in college who kind of said, well, this is the way, if you want to make money and you're a college student, this is the, this is the way to do it. I mean, you know, unless yeah. you want to go you know, pole dance or something. <laughs> you know? So we're talking about legit. It could have been Although a very different did, book. Yeah, we did talk about maybe going and waitressing like at the Playboy Club or something really cool. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was talked out of that. But in any case, so yeah, I, I did waitress. And once you get, and now I'm a very, um, I'm a very klutzy person too. That kind of worked way into the book. So it's hard to be a good waitress when you're tripping over yourself all the time. But once you get the hang of it, you can kind of go anywhere at any time. They're always looking for people. But you do learn a lot about dealing with people. I have to say that. Mm. I learned a lot about dealing with the public, about managing people, which is kind of, mm -hmm, which yeah. is an important skill that, you know, I kind of used, I guess, the rest of my life in, you know, in work environments. So life lessons and waiting tables. Yeah. Working food service, I think is, is something that is very humbling for anyone who's ever done it. I've also worked in food service. I've been a server for like a hot second. I was terrible at it. I stopped doing it, but I, you're absolutely right. You learn to problem solve on the fly and just kind of work with people and yeah and you diffuse situations and it's very rhythmic you have to do like this at this table and the next thing it's like you're yeah. kind of going through phase you're phasing back and forth with what you're bringing people and what they need and you know you, you have to keep people and and this is explained to jessica in the story by the restaurateur that's kind of like this father figure for all of them that this is an experience you're creating for people you know you're entertaining them so it's uh it's an interesting it's an interesting vocation and yeah. I think we've all been there where we've dumped a lot of stuff on a customer before. <laughs> and it's a, it's a freaking nightmare. It is yeah. terrifying. I'm happy to spoil some particular scenes because I've got some questions. Okay, here we I've, go. Just a couple. Uh-oh. I've got a couple I know pointed scene questions. Okay. <laughs> 
One of my favorite scenes is when all the friends make fried zucchini and give it to the biker gang. And the biker gang agrees to be their muscle if they ever need them. I think there's something about author that's really fun. Is like you get to play God with your story. You can do whatever you want. You choose what everyone does, whatever. Where did this biker gang fried snack bodybuilder thing come from? Where did this come from? Oh, my. <laughs> okay. Things in the book are, are kind of just thinly veiled places in New Hope, and some of them do still exist. There was a bar in New Hope where a lot of the bikers would go hang out, and it was just a couple of doors down from the apartment building, you know, where we did stay. And we worked in a restaurant, so... <laughs> So one day we decided, you know, my roommate decided she was going to teach me how to fry zucchini. And we did truck it over next door and give it out to the guys who were on the patio. Now there was, it was not attached to, oh, and by the way, when, you, you know, now you protect us, etc. I don't know if I, yeah, I don't know that we ever saw the same per people there twice. I don't know. We would just walk by, you know, it wasn't that organized. But I do remember doing that. I do remember even at the time being like, what's wrong with us? <laughs> Awesome. Why are we doing this? I don't know. But we did. So. And once That's again, so I kind of just wanted to just meet different people and do different things. And so we, we went with it. That is, I love that that's a real life experience. That's so good. That's so good. I have so many positive reactions to your choice to intersect the friends with drag culture. And what they're going to. And the people who are involved in that performance and those, uh, and not just the performance, but the costuming and all of that, in many ways are sages, just like the restaurateur who's like teaching these life lessons of like how to get out there in the world. Can you tell us a little about like the choice to make those two cultures intersect? Well, New Hope was very progressive for the time. I mean, it still is, but I think a lot of yeah. the rest of the world has caught up. So now maybe it's just kind of like uh, cool and expected. But in New Hope, it yeah. was just kind of its own little enclave. And that's where people gravitated to. And you could have whatever kind of sexual orientation that you wanted to. And it was all fine. You know, and like I said, it, it still is there. But it was it was more its own community unto itself. It's kind of like there was San Francisco and there was Miami and there was New Hope. New Hope was a little mm. bit more of a of a better kept secret, I guess. But once again, the, the impetus was kind of to get out there and see how other people were living in the world other than yeah. me. You know, us in our little dorm and, uh, you know, and our little schools. Not that every school is that sheltered, but it was more, you know, she, she says often, I want to see life as it is. So that was just kind of the fun of it to be out there with people who just followed their hearts and had to be who they were, no matter what the rest of the society said about it, which at the time people were saying plenty. And there was a risk to it. And even just, I mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, AIDS has to come into a conversation if you're, you know, you're talking about drag queens in the 1980s. Uh, it yeah. becomes a part, it was the part of the culture for anybody who was sexually active at the time, but more so if you were in a higher risk category. But there was a risk to it in that socially it was considered, uh, well, it was termed socially unacceptable. Yeah. Um, yeah. And that was a term that people used. And we girls in, in college didn't want to be limited by that. You know, we wanted to see, and you know, everything was acceptable. So that's kind of what, you know, what that was about. Let's get out there and see what people other than me are living and what their experiences are. I want to know what's out there. You know, I don't want to be naive. 
I love that choice. I love that you and the experiences you had with your friends, you put that into your character so that other people can read and experience that. These these challenges in society are are not done with and we're long we're we're far from them being done with them. And I think the choices you made and therefore your characters made of seeing out there and getting out there for themselves and meeting people and interacting with them as like real people helped create in them such intelligence and wisdom and empathy that is like really important. And I, I just love that that lesson was in there. I'm really glad that came across. I know once in a lifetime, the director's cut is about a decade out, the 900 page version of your book. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you can tell us like, is there one scene or one arc that got left on the cutting room floor from your editor that like was so hard to let go of that you like loved a part of the book that's not in there anymore? There wasn't a lot of fiddling in the editing process, and that was nice. But um, there was a lot of people more who were consolidated together. I think this was a very wildly peopled book at one point in my head. And some of those characters really had to just be represented by one person. Uh, so mm. it was kind of sad to not be able to break out those individual people and all their their glorious quirkiness because that's what I wanted to reflect. And, you know, the chaos that kind of came out of that, which is, you know, just like a, an enjoyable chaos. Um, maybe a couple of scenes. There was a scene that I really hated to cut where her uh, Jessica's wacky hometown boyfriend first meets her best friend at a frat party and in fact jumps up on a table and introduces them as something like the princesses of, so it was like at, you know, like a medieval <laughs> frat party, you know, everybody was in costume and kind of, Fantastic. you know, yeah, gets like the DJ on the dance floor to throw the spotlights on them and say, these are the, you know, the princesses of art or whatever he called them. I, I forget, but I wanted to give him that kind of like wacky introduction and I couldn't cause it just, there was no place I could find to fit it in there where it didn't completely break up you know the rest of the narrative but that's right. what yeah. <laughs> that's what we we writers are told are kill your darlings even if you love them sometimes you have to let those things uh, go hard calls. <laughs> yeah that's cool though one thing in doing research about you and your book i came across this great article you wrote called women with attitude how 80s new wave music fueled feminism and we're going to put it in our show notes. It's such a uh, it's a great read. I really encourage anyone listening to go out and check out that article. But there's just something I, I really like that you wrote in there. And so I'm just going to quote. I'm going to quote you back to you. Ooh. And I'm just curious about your impressions <laughs> of it. So as much as characters like my protagonist Jessica were inspired to conquer the male dominated world, they certainly felt the pressure that wanting it all brought to bear on their entire generation. It was not only a lot for women to live up to, it was a lot for most men to handle without denting their egos. And that's a battle that's still going on today. I think you wrote this two months ago, or I, I will say, I think it was published two months ago. Like, I think it was August 2nd that this was published. So sounds right. Yeah, that's recent. I'm just curious if you can speak to, you know, so much of what we talk about in the show is what holds up today, what's different, what's changed. This is still something that is happening. There's a perception put onto women that I think women feel about what has to be done. And I just I hear from so many friends about they still feel this pressure. And I'm just wondering if you could speak to it. Does it look any different these days? Is it the exact same thing? Is it same as it ever was? Or is it like, <laughs> has it evolved? I'm just really curious, like, what your perception is of that, because it clearly still exists. Well, it 
does exist, but I think it is at least a lot more acceptable for women to stand up and say when it's happening. Mm, mm. I, d- I don't want it. It's it, there are a lot of great guys out there because so I don't want to. I don't want it to sound like you know I'm, I'm man bashing at any point, but I, I do feel like it was more just considered like the fact of life as women that you are you are constantly kind of fending off a certain amount of unwanted contact advances, et cetera, what have you mm. in the workplace. And that's intimidating for a lot of people. And, you know, honestly, I've always been this very, you know, headstrong, I'm do what I want. I don't care who says what about it. Um, so I <laughs> feel like I was able to shrug a lot of stuff off and that doesn't mean it didn't happen. That doesn't mean it didn't have an impact. So it is still happening, but at least we've, I think, evolved as a culture into say that if it does happen, we have to take pains to try and stop it. Uh, so, you know, and in that case, maybe it won't happen quite as often. I'm trying to see if my mic will pick it up. I'm doing jazz snaps here, like just preaching, like <laughs> yeah. preach from the back of a coffee club. This is oh, okay. Great. Yeah. <laughs> no, and, and absolutely. And, you know, we kind of talked about it in our Pat Benatar episode when we talked about her and how, you know, she was also that headstrong person that wasn't going to take any guff from these jerky male, you know, music execs and producers who were going to try to pigeonhole her or tell her to do a thing that, you know, just wasn't artistically what she wanted to do. And so I like to think that we're in a better space, but I certainly know we're, we're not out of the woods yet. But it raises a question, how many Pat Benatar power shimmies has Suzanne used to get men away from her is what I want to know. Hmm. You mean like in that that we belong? I I usually don't break out into a dance number, but I probably could, (laughs) is the thing. It worked for Pat. It's it's true. No, but more, I've I've probably been a little bit more of a hothead and yelled at people, but (laughs) when necessary. And just, uh, I don't know. You have to have a certain amount of blinders on, I think, to really, uh, you know, power your way through things sometimes. And just, like I said, just ignore people. Just if somebody mm. told me something. Mm-hmm. And, and that's true for whether it's men, women, it doesn't really matter. If I listen to all the people who told me I couldn't do things, then I, I don't know where I would be. I, but you know what I mean? Like I had a lot of things I wanted to do. And if I listened to the people who told me, oh, I don't think you should do that, you know, I wouldn't have done anything. Yeah, right. Yeah, you got to put those naysayers out of your mind. Yeah, just like all I can control is me. That's what, and I've, mm-hmm. I did a couple of discussions with like a life coach who has a, podcast and that was a big part of the conversation all i can control very positive thinking norman vincent peel all i can control is me i can't control mm-hmm. what the you know what people are paying other women or who else is being hired all i can say is listen if you don't pay me this i'm going someplace else and that's right, you yeah. know what i did over the course of my life and it worked out to my advantage eventually so i hope other people have the courage to just do that i amen. love it amen I'm looking at the clock. We, we got to forge our it's own late. path. We've got to get to our <laughs> final class. We got to get to math to ask our final question. How does this song hold up today? I'll see you all down the hall. All right, we're here. It's math class. We've had a great discussion. We're not putting your book on the scales to see how it holds up. The listeners, you're just going to have to go out and get it. We're going to talk about where people can get it at the end of this class. But right now, what we are going to put on the scales is the song by Talking Heads, Once in a Lifetime. So we want to talk about how does it hold up? Does it hold up? Uh, What do we think about it? 
now in 2022. Suzanne, do you want to kick us off? Do you want one of us to start and you jump in? Mm. What what sounds good to you? I'll throw a thing. I love this song. I, I think it stands up. I think that people are having a deeper appreciation these days of songs from this era. They were complex, I think, compared to the way that music mm. is produced now. Um, I think it holds up because it is so kind of open-ended and imagist and not mm. really pigeonholed into any era almost other than the electronic sounds maybe. You know, I mean, it sounds like an 80s song. But the message of the song and this existential question that it asks and this midlife crisis mm. that it's depicting, I think so many people go through this. I think it's almost unavoidable as a human being. So... I think that's why it's kind of become an anthem. That's awesome. I love Fantastic. it. Ben, what are your thoughts? I work my way backwards. The music video, I think I struggle with to like still say it holds up. I think, and that works with anytime anyone uses CG because CG gets dated so quickly. Mm. And so the minute you see some of the CG they put in it and how how they did um, the the clips of the different practices from different religions around the world. Like you could do that like iMovie on your phone in a couple of minutes a decade ago. So like that's struggling. And I feel like music videos today, even, you know, music videos as a, as a genre are kind of fading now. Cause you just, you just listen on Pandora or Spotify or just streaming and no, you don't watch mm. music videos like you used to. So that art form is struggling to begin with, but the ones you do see, it's either like there's not a story thread. It's just celebrating an environment. Here's everyone at a party having a great time kind of thing, or it's the band on stage, or it's a clear narrative. And so like there's not a real clear rhythm to either of those in the music video. So the music video is a little hard to follow and swallow mm. today. It's still as, still as strange as it ever was. I'm trying to say it again. It's still strange when it first came out. But going back to the song, I think the song holds up really well. I love the song. It's super catchy. It's a great earworm. That like bass just gets in your head and the bubbly sort of synth on top of it. Mm. Like it is a great earworm. The music itself is a testament. I think when artists choose to take influences from so many different cultures, that helps the sound last longer. Mm. Like if it was just big band Benny Goodman swing, <laughs> like that dates real fast unless you're at a swing event. But like by taking so many different samples, those cultures all collaborate to help the song last longer, I think, to keep its relevance. And yeah, just like Suzanne said, I can't say it any better. Like I think for time immemorial, we will all struggle with should we follow the prescription of life that we've been told or should we carve our own path and have agency and do crazy things and come up with tangents and swirly routes to get there? <laughs> and so I think the existential crisis of burn in the song will last forever. I think the poetry is still very relevant. So I think the song still is is fantastic and holds up really well. I think we're pretty much all in agreement uh, in this. I would say, you know, Talking Heads, this is what I like. They managed to sound like a band from the future in the 80s and a band from an alternate past today. And yet they were still appreciated in their time. It's like a, a series of conundrums and, and paradoxes in my mind. Nice. Um, maybe it's because the 80s were about experimentation and bombastic flair, about taking chances without reservations. I don't know. Um, but I do love experimentation and creativity. But sometimes it doesn't quite land or isn't fully formed. However, in this case, I think the band really stuck to the landing we know they work together in the face of doubt, in the face of even staying together, and they made it make sense. And I think, thankfully, the song wasn't left on the cutting room floor never to be heard. We were able to experience it. It, it made its way through. 
Because for me, Once in a Lifetime serves as the quintessential talking head song. It's uh, it's very representative, right? It's dreamy, it's hypnotic, it's steeped with meaning, but it doesn't spoon feed. And when it comes to materialism and consumerism and the growing complexities of modern life, like both of you said, the questions of what are we doing, why are we doing it, are we on autopilot, those are always going to be relevant and necessary to ask. So it has that timeless feature to it. The song is like the musical arrangement of the thoughts that hit you on a Thursday night when you're exhausted and eager to sleep, your head hits the pillow, and that's when your brain decides it's going to ambush you with racing questions and worries. And though none of us really want to experience that existential midnight panic, I do love that Talking Heads captured it for us in a way that I think only talented musicians can. So I guess in summary, the song entertains, it asks, it takes us on a journey, and it leaves us wondering. Well, way to bring it home. Yeah, that was good. beautiful. Suzanne, we cannot thank you enough for joining us today to talk about this song, to talk about your book. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It was great. I think one of the best parts about doing these pr uh, promotional uh, visits is that I've met so many cool people to have these terrific conversations with. So thank you so much. And I'm glad we gave you a break in between meeting those cool people. I'm glad you were there. No, no, no. All that popularity. <laughs> I, so no, no, no. For, for our listeners, can you tell us yes. two things? What have you got in the hopper right now? What are, you, what are you working on? And where else can people find you and the book? Well, you can find the book on uh, Amazon or Barnes & Noble uh, online. It's by uh, Touchpoint Press, so uh, it can be uh, ordered through there as well if you're uh, listening and you're with a library, bookstore, etc. You can take a look at my website, uh, su SuzanneMataboni.com. It's uh, S-U-Z-A-N-N-E-M-A-T-T-A-B-O-N-I. Or uh, for this book, OnceInALifetimeNovel.com. Uh, mm -hmm. So if you go to any of those places, you can, you know, kind of see a little bit more uh, about me, about the book, stuff about 1984, when the book takes place and various events. Uh, we're going to have a nice event at the New Hope Winery in December. I think that's mm -hmm. on December oh. 3rd. They're doing a whole, you know, launch the event for us. So, uh, so that'll be fun. And um, I have a collection of short stories that I'm kind of polishing up and showing to some people. Mm. I've done um, both like relationship stories and horror stories. So I don't know mm. where I, I'm still trying to kind of reconcile those two areas of writing and <laughs> I don't know they seem pretty strange. overlapping at times let's just yeah. say <laughs> we didn't get yeah. to talk about was it pizza stories and poltergeist oh yeah pizzas and pizza parties and poltergeist that's pizza because parties, I, was pizza just, parties. I was just at a book fair um I, I had mentioned and I brought though that anthology which I have one story in there it's a collection yeah. But those are horror stories that are set in the 1980s. So there's cool. like, so and cool. it, you know, a, a haunted mall and a uh. demonic VCR player that, yes. you know. Like, and that's I, awesome. You know, is that on again, Amazon as well or through yes, other book outlets? Yes, that's on Amazon can... also. Oh, exciting. Parties and okay. Poltergeist. And I was surprised that people bought just as many copies of that as the as the new book because i think because halloween is coming up it's recording. so close <laughs> it's so close so uh so that's that's fun stuff too i'm in uh i'm in several anthologies as you as you mentioned so yeah it's a nice way to get the work out there quickly you know as opposed to waiting like you know two years for a book absolutely 
Well, thank you so much, everyone listening. Go out, check out those places. We're going to put those websites in the show notes. So you don't have to remember how to spell Suzanne's name. You can find it it by link. (laughs) Well, again, thank you so much for being here. Um, We do have one more thing we've got to do before we close out this episode. Ben, as we've mentioned, we're galloping to October, perhaps our favorite time of the year. And you do have the honor of taking us into the spirit of the season with our oh next spooktacular episode. I'm Ooh. so I'm so thrilled to see what you've come up with. Lay it on us. Well, Suzanne's given me a great segue by talking about pizza parties and poltergeist, oh which my is go- just oh. fantastic. I okay. kind of want to just do that collection as my next topic because that would be totally on point. No, you know, like I've said several times in 80s High, you know, I get very excited because it's important to challenge myself and put myself outside of my comfort zone and learn along with the listeners. Okay. And so I have decided finally that I'm going to do a broad topic, a broad reach, not a specific movie, not one game, a big category. And since it is the season for spooky boos and scary woos, I'm going to tackle Halloween. No, not a giant William Shatner mask wearing knife wielding monster. But I want to try and cover the entire topic of the season of Halloween in 1980s. Oh my God. I want to go through the history of where all these traditions began that we do in the 80s. I want to talk about what Halloween and trick or treating was like in the 80s. And then, of course, like cover us and our listeners' experiences trick or treating, pumpkin patches, mm. apple orchards, watching scary movies together, trying Haunted to. houses. S- Summon old great aunts and uncles on Ouija boards. I want to get into <laughs> it with our listeners. So next time on 80s High, invite your friends over. Come down to the basement. Turn the lights off and light some candles. Because we're going to explore Halloween in the 1980s. That is very broad. You have it's gone. Bold. It's a bold move, You've boldly gone broad. We're going to have to contain ourselves. I'm very excited. Sounds marvelous. Oh, doesn't it? It's my favorite season. I freaking love Halloween. So I this is Halloween like no more. Oh, right? Oh, man. Well, then we're going to have Suzanne back. No, we got to give her a break. I mean, she's got to sleep eventually. She's been but, on a uh, tireless no, tour talking about her book. So, yeah, we'll give you a break. But um, I'm excited, Ben. I'm thrilled. Pile up your candy in your collection. Get ready to divide it up because next time we're going to get on a sugar high together talking Halloween on Ooh. 80s High. Thanks, everyone, for listening to 80s High Podcast by Ben and Chris. Our theme song is by Greg Reed at gregreedmusic.com with vocals by Chad Bumford. Show artwork is by Alex Goddard at alexgoddarddesign.com. If you like the show, please support us by passing a note to a friend in your next class. Also, you can rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts to help spread the rumor. Stay radical!